listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? The enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will, let the har- I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parables of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Will. All right. Easy text for us today. So you've probably heard a scientist or smart person or some luminary who's invented something very, very complex, or they're the caretakers of really deep science, and they're asked by, you know, Joe Blow, like, help us understand this. Help us get our brain around this. And in order for average person to understand, they've worked it through, they've worked through the complexity to such a way that they can explain something that's really difficult in simple terms. And it actually takes a a certain kind of genius to be able to offer simplicity on the other side of complexity. And our text tells us this morning uh, with a quote from the Psalms that what Jesus is doing in these parables is he's uttering things hidden from the creation of the world. Jesus is uncovering for us the secrets of the universe. It's interesting to consider the context in which he's doing this. Jesus is in northern Israel. 
He is in the, the region around the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. He is with, um, in, in a rural context, explaining the secrets of the universe. And I thought, this is a little bit like Albert Einstein explaining the theory of relativity while floating down the Illinois and talking to a bunch of people who are like nursing a natty light. It's like, if you want to be understood in this moment, you're going to have to dumb it down just a little bit. In Jesus' approach for dumbing it down or, or making slightly more accessible the secrets of the universe is by telling stories, by telling parables that make complex secrets easier to understand. This week, I, I was a little curious whether the Greek word uh, that's translated parable is related to the math term that I only, you know, vaguely remembered, parabola, from my high school math days. And as I Googled parabola on my own, I realized I'm a long way away from high school math. And so I texted my friend Amy Ann, who was a high school math teacher. I did learn in the process that, that parable and parabola do come from the same Greek word uh, as a root. A parabola in math world is when a cone is, uh, I have to write it down because I don't remember it, a cone is intersected by a plane. So what we have here is we have these even distributions. We have a clear left and the right on either side of the axis. That's what a parabola does. A parable in a similar way shows you a, a clear comparison or contrast. So think about some of the parables of Jesus you got the, the prodigal son, you've got the older son, and you've got the younger son. Or in Matthew chapter 25, you've got the sheep and the goats. You think about the parable of the sower, which we looked at, how you have these evenly divided quadrants. You have the good soil, the seed that landed among the thorns, among the rocks, on the path. A parabola shows you a contrast or a juxtaposition, and a parable does just the same things. It uh, presents complex ideas in accessible ways. Now, is the reality of the secrets of the universe more nuanced or complex than the parable? Almost certainly. But Jesus is talking to regular people, and so he's trying to make the story accessible. What we're not meant to do in reading a parable like this one is to get lost in unnecessary details. So take the parable of the prodigal son. Where's the mother in the whole story? Well, that maybe is an interesting question to consider, but it really has nothing to do with the point of the parable. What we are meant to do when Jesus presents us with a parable is to ask, what is the big point of the story? What's the, the, the really big talking points that Jesus wants us to walk away with? What truth does the story reveal? And importantly, what response does the parable uh, invite from you and from me? Now, texts like this can make one a little bit uncomfortable. I did chuckle. I met a new couple outside before the service started, and I thought, I'm glad you came to Weeping and Gnashing of Teeth Sunday. But texts like this, anything where it seems like judgment or eternity is on the line, often fit into the I don't really want to think about that one too much category for many of us. Or because some people seem to have had way too much confidence and certainty about who precisely are the wheat and who precisely are the weeds in the parable, many of us have clung to our favorite verses about God's love and just we're just going to push the whole idea of judgment out of our brains. Hopefully, it just quietly takes care of itself. But here's the problem. If we don't come to grips with this topic of judgment, 
If we say, as in verse 42, if we say that we don't want God to weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, what are we left with? We're saying, God, we don't want you to come and judge the world. Then what we are saying is um, we actually want you to leave in your world all of these things that cause sin. Or if we find that we instinctively bristle at or push back on the notion of divine judgment, it may reveal that we have some wrong thinking in our brains. We're thinking wrong about God as if God is capricious, as as if God is mean-spirited, as if God just wants to smote everybody, that God is neither just nor merciful but arbitrary, or we think wrongly about ourselves as if humanity has not done anything that God needs to, to correct and to clean up. I do think it's important when we're thinking about the topic of judgment to think about it through the lens of Jesus Christ. How Jesus on the cross bore the punishment that all of humanity deserves. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews that Jesus lives to intercede for sinful humanity. That Jesus is our great high priest. And Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of the world, is the one to whom judgment is entrusted. And we also have to remember that the cross was God's very real response to human sin and rebellion. In God making a covenant with humanity, there had to be the shedding of blood. That the cross was not just a a valentine from God, but it was God's response as atonement for the, the reality of human sin and depravity. So we need to think about the need for our saving. We need to think about the the need for judgment. We think about those things through the lens of Jesus who lives to intercede for us. And so I I so love this. When I think about this, this theme of judgment or when I think about God coming as judge, nobody has simplified this better for me than my dad who just said, you know, I think he's gonna do a good job. It's like, yes, yes. I love how Timothy Keller said the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Or it's Romans. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When it comes to judgment, justice, I think he's going to do a good job. When we talk about the the doctrine of judgment, we're talking about how God is ultimately going to sort out right and wrong. And the doctrine of judgment is, is the answer to the question that every generation asks, how could a good God allow suffering to exist in his world? And when we talk about God coming as judge, we're saying God will not accept such things forever. Though for now, in the wisdom of God, he permits it. Why does he permit it? Second Peter said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some consider slowness. Instead, he is patient because he doesn't want any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient in finally giving a final answer to the problem of of human evil because he wants to invite willful repentance. He wants to give us time to respond to his grace. But we need to remember that judgment is really, really good news. That the justice that Jesus will deliver when he does a real good job is something that every human heart instinctively cries out for, craves. 
when our hearts are rocked afresh by examples of evil and deceit and injustice and death and sickness, we have to remember that God is going to deal with us. I love how Andrew Peterson in his song, Rise Up, addresses this. He said, every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon when you will rise up in the end. He says, if a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and he murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. The human heart naturally has this instinct, this impulse, this bent toward justice, and that comes from God who is the origin of justice and who will be the final enactor of justice on the earth. And the things that break your heart break yours because they broke His first. In this parable where Jesus is helping us get our brains around the secrets of the universe, we have a, a farmer who's growing a field of wheat, and in the middle of the night, his enemy comes and he sows weeds into it. Now, people have traditionally understood this weed to be one that's called darnel. Never heard of this before my studies. But darnel is known as a mimic weed, a mimic weed, meaning that it naturally looks a lot like weed, that until the, the wheat, until the very, very end, you're not sure, is this a weed or is this wheat? Darnell looks like it, but if you happen to eat Darnell, it can be very, very dangerous. At the worst, it can poison and actually kill a person. At, at, at the very least, it, it's something that can give you um, a, a negative response. You can be dizzy and off balance and nauseous. It can blur your vision and your speech. It can actually be a really dangerous substance. It's probably Darnell that's, that's referenced here and elsewhere in the Scriptures. It shows up in at least three or four of Shakespeare's plays. And every time Darnell shows up in, 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 in literature, uh, it, it represents toxicity. It represents a subversive factor. And this is certainly what's going on in the parable. The point is, when you have the weeds and the wheat, that it can be difficult to tell from the outside which is which. And so the farmer, in his wisdom, says, let's hold off on harvesting them because we don't want to lose the good stuff in the process. Let's wait until the end. If you want to know the difference between this and that, you have to look at the roots and you have to pay attention to the fruits. One of those is going to lead to life and the other one of those is going to lead to death. And so Jesus tells the parable, the disciples come and ask for the interpretation, and he gives us a, a sense of what he's getting at when he tells the story. So what are the big ideas that we're meant to take away from this parable? One, that God created a good world. That God's posture is good toward that world. God intended good, and God intends good toward his world. We're meant to, be, uh, to appreciate in this story that there is an enemy who sows confusion and chaos into God's world. 
that in the lifetime that you and I are experiencing, God is being patient with his world, but he's ultimately going to sort out what's right and what's wrong, what's good and evil in his world. And that sorting out is not just something that anyone can do. God himself, God's emissaries, will be entrusted with the work of sorting things out and bringing things to rights. And the confusion and the chaos that we experience as characteristic of life in the present age will not last forever. Now, I suspect that for many of us, the, the discomfort or the difficulty with the text is tied to verse 42. They will throw them, the weeds, into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, images like this are what fuel a lot of our imagination for hell. Um, I'm probably putting myself in the category of like Gen Xers and boomers. I, I'm, well, I'm not one, but I, I think immediately of far side cartoons. Some of you over a certain age will know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Gary Larson cartoons where there's, there's a pitchfork, there's some plain-faced person who's navigating hell. Uh, or some of us will think about that SNL sketch where Will Ferrell plays the devil who's attempting to write a love song. And the devil can't write a love song. Garth Brooks is in it. It's kind of funny. But we have in our mind, our minds are populated with these images of like the, the devil on the shoulder who's all in red, holding a pitchfork and flames. But when Jesus makes this reference to the blazing furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth, we have every reason to believe that he, in his mind, was not thinking of Gary Larson, but actually had a very different and particular thing that he was thinking about. And it actually was a specific place on earth. This comes from N.T. Wright. He said the most common New Testament word, sometimes translated by hell, is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a place, not just an idea. It was the rubbish heap, the, the, the place where they burned trash, outside of the southwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem. There is to this day a valley at that point that bears the name Gehinnom. Once Christian readers had been sufficiently distanced from the original meaning of the words, alternative images would come to mind. So imagine that you're raised in Jerusalem and Jesus drops the word Gehenna. You've got an idea of what he's talking about. But imagine that you're centuries removed and thousands of miles removed. Other ideas are going to begin to populate in your mind, generated not by Jesus or the New Testament, but by the stock of images supplied by ancient and medieval folklore and imagination. Here's what I'm beginning to get at and to, to, to present to you, I think what N.T. Wright is getting at, is that often in Jesus' teaching. When images of flames and fire are brought up, he's not going to that thing that you're specifically thinking of that came from popular culture, a red devil with a pitchfork somewhere under the ground. Instead, Jesus is thinking about a particular image or practice that most of his hearers could already think of, they were aware of, the garbage dump. And he's communicating that there is a way of life and that there is a way of being in the world that will ultimately be taken out with the trash. And I think what is the most important thing that we need, to re we need to remember here? We do not want to be part of that. Weeping and uh, gnashing of teeth. We do not want to be part of that. When it comes to the specific details of divine judgment, I think that we ought to be wary of those who say we can know nothing Pay attention, be careful of such people. 
But I think we should also be alert and wary of those people who have a chart and a timeline and an explanation for everything as if God has told them specifically how every detail of the divine judgment that is to come will unfold. I think it's helpful how N.T. Wright says that when it comes to Christian hope and the topic of judgment and the justice that God will bring to the earth, what we have in the Scriptures are like signposts pointing into the fog. There is a fog. There are some things that we don't know. So that's when, like, we'll read a parable like this. We need to pay attention. What is being invited of me? I think about the story where people come to Jesus and they're like, hey, uh, remember when the Tower of Siloam fell and those 18 people were killed? Like, what's the deal with that? And, and, and were they particular sinners? And Jesus reframes from the particularities of that question, and he says, repent, lest something worse happen to you. There is a fog. There are things that we don't know, and yet we are not left without signposts. The Scriptures give us such clarity that would call us to repentance, that would invite us that we know that God is going to bring justice on the earth, and we want to be on the, the right side of God's justice when He brings it to the earth. One thing that I think we can be confident of is God is going to demonstrate His justice and His mercy when He comes. N.T. Wright again said, God is utterly committed to set the world right in the end. On the right and on the left and everywhere in between, there are people yelling into microphones, making their case for how the world is going to be made right. God is going to do this the right way. He is even more committed to it than we are. And this doctrine of judgment, of justice, like that of the resurrection itself, is held firmly in place by the belief in God as creator on the one side and the belief in His goodness on the other. And that setting right must necessarily involve the elimination of all that distorts God's good and lovely creation, in a particular of all that defaces His image-bearing human creatures. He says not to put too fine a point on it, but there will be no barbed wire in the kingdom of God. There will be no nuclear weapons in the kingdom of God. There will be no need to have a security system in the kingdom of God. There will be no parental or spousal abuse in the kingdom of God. There will be no drug addiction or alcoholism in the kingdom of God. There will be no racism in the kingdom of God. There will be no violence or war or predatory behaviors in the kingdom of God. Those things will go away. There will be no body insecurity in the kingdom of God or exploitation of the vulnerable in the kingdom of God. God is utterly committed to setting things to rights. And Wright says, and those whose whole being has become dependent on barbed wire, on war, on predation, on hatred, will have no place there either. Is that good news? It is. What makes us uncomfortable is we know that some of those things in seed form exist in us. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, do not be angry with your brother. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not look at a woman with lust in your heart. 
Jesus recognizes that these gross sins that turn into enterprise-level sources of injustice in our world exist in seed form in us. So how are we meant to respond to the teaching and the invitation of Jesus? I want to quickly offer five points of encouragement before we come to the table. The first thing is to avoid foolish controversies. Paul to Titus, Titus chapter 3. Avoid foolish controversies and arguments and quarrels because these are unprofitable and useless. It's my observation that some people cop out of the moral responsibility that comes from hearing a text like this by asking specific questions, like questions that end up like how many angels can dance on the pen of a feather, or the, you know, the, the end of a needle. Well, this is stupid. Maybe you don't think it is, but it's beside the point to me. Or, oh, well, you know, what exactly does it mean? I just know you don't want to be a part of judgment. You don't want to be taken out with the trash. So, don't attempt to cop out of moral responsibility by getting into one of those unwinnable arg arguments about how things are going to shake out in the age to come. Avoid foolish controversies. I think the most important thing that each of us ought to do is to invite the Holy Spirit to weed the garden of our hearts. But Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I've been thinking of late about uh, that recurring image in the judges and the books of the kings in the Old Testament of how the people of Israel refused to remove the high places. God had instructed there were these places where they're meant to gather and worship. The high places were associated with idol worship, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And what determined if it was a good king or a bad king is did they remove the high places? Where are their high places in our hearts? It's like, generally speaking, you're walking in the way of truth, you're walking in the way of life, but there's this one spot that you've left to yourself and you've left guarded. You won't invite the Spirit to tend. I think about Psalm 19. The psalmist says, who can discern their own errors? How are we meant to respond to a passage like this? By inviting the Holy Spirit to point out those errors for our good. How, how ought all of us to respond in wisdom to the teaching of Jesus to repent and to change our ways? We try most Sundays to pray a prayer of confession, but it's important more than just a, a singular prayer of confession on a Sunday is to live from a posture of confession, a posture of repentance. And I think we must deal seriously with those high places as the Lord points them out to us. Jesus, speaking hyperbolically, says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Where are those places in your life the Spirit is calling you to repentance? A high place that you've tolerated for too long, and the Lord is calling you to take drastic action. And so it may be for some that you habitually end up in a particular neighborhood on the Internet. And it happens to be the case that you end up in those particular neighborhoods when you happen to be in these particular situations. Uh, nobody's home or you're traveling. How is the Lord inviting you to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye so that you don't put yourself in that neighborhood at all? The, the invitation for us today as we hear the, the warning and the invitation and the good news of God is to repent and to change our ways. 
Like fourth, the invitation is to believe the gospel and live in God's kingdom that is now here among us through the Spirit inaugurated by Jesus. As we talked about last week, whoever sows to the Spirit is going to reap from the Spirit. Whoever sows to the flesh is going to reap from the flesh. The kingdom of God is present. It's at hand. It's among us. There's an invitation to be an apprentice of Jesus today, to hear the good news of the gospel and to sign up and enroll in the academy of Jesus, learning from him how to live if he were you, just in your particular set of life. And then I think the fifth and the last thing that the news of judgment does for us is it invites us to look forward to the consummation of the kingdom. This comes from Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings, present sufferings being like the age in which we find ourselves where the weeds and the wheat grow together, where there is still chaos in God's world. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. I want you to try to imagine a version of yourself that doesn't bear the psychological scars you inherited from the people who should have loved and protected you when you were little. I want you to try to imagine a version of yourself liberated from those proclivities that have been like a plague in your life. I want you to imagine a version of yourself that is freed from all of the ways in which you compensate for your fears and your insecurities. In the age to come, the Lord himself comes from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and we are made new in Christ. We will be liberated, and creation will be awestruck to see the revelation of the children of God. Can you imagine a version of our world itself that's brought back to its renewed creational intention? This is ultimately the good news of judgment. And for those of us who've put our hope in Jesus, who have repented, continue to repent, to confess our sins, and to put our faith in Jesus, believing the gospel, we can walk into judgment with eyes open, walking forward in peace when our conscience condemns us, remembering that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ who prays for us. Each of us, whether it's for the the first or the 100th time today as we come to the table, are invited to repent and to believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that your kingdom is at hand. And so many of us have caught glimpses of it, you know, turning around the corner, and sometimes it feels so near, and sometimes it feels just out of reach. But we know because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that you've entered into human history, that you have toppled the powers that oppress us, and that you will ultimately make all things new. So we trust that you're here and now and working in our midst, and we trust that as you've been faithful in the past and you are faithful now, you will be faithful forever and you will set this world to rights. Jesus, as we come to the table today, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. 
May it be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. As we receive from the table, may it be for us like a taste, a sample of the great marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come when heaven and earth are joined together and when you make all things new. So pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As we come to the table, let's pray a prayer of confession together. Pray, Almighty God and Father, we confess to you, to one another, and to the whole company of heaven that we have sinned through our own fault in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, raise us up to serve you in newness of life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.